Well, today marks, uh, I believe, my 365th day working with this church. And uh, so, well, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say that uh, kind of looking back over it, um, you have been a tremendous blessing to my family and to me personally. Uh, I think we've experienced growth here, which is something that, uh, that we were very much looking for. We've uh, experienced community and good relationships, and we have enjoyed our year, and we look forward to many, uh, many more together. Uh, so thank you very much for, uh, for the way that you've treated us and accepted us. Um, Throughout that last year, our, our series, uh, or our, our lessons, kind of centered on the idea of uh, that we were committed to community. Uh, if you commit yourself to Jesus, that's great, and that's wonderful, and that's essential, but along with that comes this commitment to his family. You are not a Christian on your own. You're a Christian as part of a wider community of people. You're a Christian as part of the family of God. Jesus came and he established a kingdom, and as part of that, it's not only about a personal walk with God or a personal relationship with God, but also very much as important is a communal walk with God and a community relationship with God. So a lot of the, the lessons that we gave last year and a lot of the series that I did tried to tie into that theme. Well, this year, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to kind of be changing the focus a little bit. Uh, last year's was more of an inward focus, which, by the way, I think is essential. Sometimes, sometimes inward-focusing churches get a bad rap. Inward-focusing is really, really, really important. Uh, you can't properly outward-focus if the inside isn't what it's called to be. In fact, it seems to me that the majority of the New Testament is about the church actually being the people of God actually being who God has called you to be. And that requires some introspection and some inward focus. So that's important. But this year we are going to be lifting our eyes a little bit and looking a little bit more to the outside. We're going to be looking more to our mission field right here around us and abroad. We're going to be looking more to our purpose and what we're called to do here, not only for this church, but also for the community around us, for those that you come into contact with and for those that you see throughout your life. The theme for this next year is going to be short in one word, so it should be easy to remember, and that is the word sent. We are sent. We are a people who have been sent. And a lot of times when we think of the word uh, sent or sending, uh, we think of it kind of in, in the future tense, like where is God going to send me? Where am I going to go? What am I going to do for him? It's, it's kind of something that we think of as, uh, as opportunity for the future. You know, what, where, where am I going to go? What does is, what is God have in store for me? But what I'd like us to think about a little bit this morning is not so much the future, where am I going to be sent, but perhaps the present, um, why am I here right now? Why is it that I am a part of this community of believers? Why is it that I live in this city? Why is it that I have the neighbors that I have? Why is it that I have the coworkers that I have? Why is it that I see the same person as I go to the bank each and every week? Why is it that I have the contacts and the relationships and the, the people in my life that are there? Why is it that I have the family that I have? And what I want to suggest is that perhaps it's because you've already been sent. Perhaps you're here right now because God wants you to be here right now and God has a mission and a plan and a purpose for you here right now. Maybe all of those people that you come into contact with, maybe your church family, maybe your neighbors, maybe your coworkers are the people to whom you have been sent. 
to do and to perform the work of God. Every single person here has a mission that God has given them. Every single person here has a purpose in the, in the kingdom of God. And you have something that you can do for the kingdom of God. And perhaps that's why you're here. Perhaps it's not so much about where you're going to be sent, but where you have been sent and what you are doing right now as you look around you and as you see the world around you. What I want to do this morning in the lesson is look at a couple of examples in the Bible of people who were either sent or people who, uh, looking back on their lives, realized, wait a minute, maybe there was more purpose here than I realized. Um, What I want to start off by doing is having you turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is just one chosen example of what could have been many uh, examples. But we're going to look at a prophetic call. This is uh, probably towards the beginning of Isaiah's uh, uh, mission and of his uh, um, prophetic work. Although it might not, not actually be the, the very, very beginning, but, uh, but we're not going to talk about that too much. But basically, this seems to be towards the beginning of his prophetic work. And... He describes a call that he has, and it's a wonderful, magnificent, very obvious call. Uh, What I mean is this is a call that no one could ever miss. You know, I so often see people, uh, and I've I've experienced it myself, like you have opportunities ahead of you. Whether, you know, in different stages of your life, the opportunities might be different, whether it's to, to marry this person or to enter into this relationship, or whether it's to go to this college or this college, or whether it's to take this job or this job, or whether to move to this city or this city, or like you have all of these opportunities and you want God's blessing. You also want to kind of know, is this what God's plan is for me? Like, is this what God wants me to do? And there's, there's so many nights spent in, in, in prayer, and there's often talking to community, and I think all of that stuff is really, really important. In fact, I, I would say don't make a major life decision without talking to your, your church family and your community of faith, without talking to, to older and wiser people, without spending a lot of time in prayer and study and, and, and trying to gain some wisdom. But at the same time, I'm not always certain that there only is one option that God has for you. Or that if you take this job, God thinks, oh, can't use them now. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. I think no matter where you end up and no matter where you are, God could probably use you there. God can still do something pretty incredible with you there. And so, uh, and so as we look at Isaiah... I think sometimes in those moments, people want one of these types of of visions. They want God to appear before them with a very clear, obvious, and direct, go here. And the problem is they don't usually get that. Uh, I don't usually get that. You know, we, we get something far more subtle and we're trying to read the clues and we're trying to think, well, maybe this happened. And, and a lot of times you just never know. I mean, I'll, I'll, honestly, a, a year and a half ago when Lauren and I and our family were presented with the possibility of coming and working here or staying with the work where we were, we loved the work where we were. We were very happy there and we have very good friends there and I think things were going well there. But here was a new opportunity and it was an opportunity with what seemed like a really, really wonderful group of people a solid congregation, a great eldership, and it looked like there was tremendous potential for the church there, but it also looked like there's, and we're trying to think, what would be the best thing for the kingdom of God? What would be the best thing for our family? And there's a lot of thinking and praying and, and conversation that goes into that, but I'm not certain that the kingdom would have crumbled had we stayed. And I'm not certain that the kingdom depends upon us going, you know? Honestly, I think God could have probably 
you would have been fine. Like, I, I think God can use what we do. Uh, and so as provided it's not like you're making some sinful decision to turn away from God, I think God can pretty much use you where you are. And that means that right here, God can use you where you are. And so when it comes to Isaiah, this is what we want and rarely what we get or never what we get. Um, Isaiah is in the temple. And he sees something magnificent. You know, I, I have to imagine most of the time that those rare and privileged people enter into the temple, what they see is a quiet, dark room. Uh, you know, there might be a little candlelight flickering there, but it's going to be quiet. There's not going to be much going on. If it weren't for like the religious significance attached to it, it might be kind of a, a boring, uh, you know, room to be standing in or, or, or a place to be. Um, but because you know spiritually that this is supposed to embody the presence of God, it becomes much more, much more significant than that. But so often in the Bible, there are people who they have, uh, I think even in the world around us, like you have what you see with your eyes, and then you have a whole world of the activities of God that are invisible to you that you don't see with your eyes. And every once in a while in the, in the Bible, like the window is open or the curtain is pulled back and you can actually see the very real, as real as anything else, world of God that sometimes is invisible to us. Sometimes that is um, when Elisha and his servant get their eyes opened to see the chariots of, of God and the mountains surrounding their city. And they realize, oh, wow, God actually is here and he's prepared for this. Uh, you know, without their eyes being opened to that second additional reality, uh, they, would, they wouldn't have been able to see it. But God is able to open their eyes in some way. And I think a similar thing happens here for Isaiah. I think he's able to see what's always truly there, but he's actually to, able to, to see it right now. What is the temple? It's not some quiet, boring building in some dark room. Uh, it, it, that's, it's so much more than that. As a matter of fact, it is teeming with the power and the glory of God and his spiritual beings and, and all of these things. He says he looks in there and uh, he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so he sees this vision. And he, I think this is not, I don't think this is, something that's never happening there, but then it finally happens once. I think this is what's always happening, and he finally gets to see it. And I think as he does so, he sees the, the remarkable, very odd-to-describe spiritual beings, seraphim. Notice we call them seraphim because that's just a Hebrew word. Uh, and Sometimes when we don't know what to, what to translate a word as, we just throw the Hebrew or the Greek word there and make it a new English word. Uh, the reason they do that is because it's hard to describe these. You know what usually this word is translated as? Snakes. Or, or fiery snakes or shining, you know, something with shining or something with snakes and somehow they're combined. So like there's a passage in the book of Numbers where it says fiery snakes went after them. That's the word seraphim. So maybe there's fiery snakes here by the, the temple. We, you know, it's, it's something weird's happening here. And, uh, but they have wings and they're flying and they're covering, but they're, they're chanting the glory of God before Isaiah. And they're saying something interesting. God is described as sitting on the throne the year the king died. Uh, that king, as good as he might have been, he's not the true king 
of even Israel, but certainly not of all the world. The true king of all the world is the one who's sitting on the throne that Isaiah is seeing right now. He's the true and ultimate king. Even above Assyria, who's kind of the mighty enemy at this time, even above the whoever sits on the throne in Israel, God is the ultimate king. And that's why his glory is on display throughout the whole world. He's not just the king of one building or the king of one city or one nation. He's the king of all that there is. And so as this happens, verse 4, and the foundation of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So you remember that, that smoke that, uh, that the, people, uh, the children of Israel could see in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. They followed it through the wilderness. Now that smoke is the representative of the, the power and the glory of God filling this room. And Isaiah is able to see it there. And it begins to shake at the voice of him who sits on the throne. And Isaiah can't help but feel his worthlessness as a human before this almighty and perfect God. He says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. This is the true king. And he calls him the Lord of hosts. Um, he can't help but come face to face with his frailty, his sinfulness. Uh, even, you know, he's a prophet, right? If there's one thing that is supposed to be pure on him, it's his lips. And he says, even my lips are the most are, are, are impure. Like he, he can't even do what he's called to do right because he's a sinful man. And he lives among people of unclean lips. Uh, in fact, if you read through Isaiah, that's something you'll, you'll see pop up from time to time, whether it be false prophets or whether it be lying or deceit and these things. And so he recognizes his personal sinfulness and the sinfulness of his community and uh, recognizes that if we're going to be calling you God, something's going to have to change. And so something uh, that I hope never happens to me happens to Isaiah. Verse 6, so one of the seraphim, they flew to him uh, with a burning coal in his hand and with which he had taken from the altar with tongs and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity has been taken away and your sin is forgiven. I prefer baptism, but, uh, but this is what happens to, uh, to Isaiah and his iniquity is taken away and his sin is forgiven. And then verse eight, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then he said, Here am I, send me. Um, he was ready for his mission. He was ready for the purpose that God had in store for him. And God made it very clear what his mission was going to be. Now, the incredible thing, by the way, about this chapter is, is you can hear long sermons about that section and the glory of God. There's a lot of beauty and a lot of description, a lot of detail right there. But then as you get to the second half of Isaiah 6, his mission is described, and it's a horrible mission. He's basically told, go preach to people who will not listen to you. And they will not hear you. They will not see the truth. They will have eyes, but they won't see. They'll have ears, but they won't hear. They're going to reject what you say. That's your mission. And Isaiah says, oh, wonderful. Uh, for how long? And God says, oh, until all of their cities are destroyed and the people are left in ruins and everything terrible comes upon the people, that's when you know your job is done. Um, that's the rest of Isaiah 6. And what strikes me is... 
if you didn't have that first part, this call, where it became very obvious that that was his job, and if all he did was he went out and he preached to the people anyway, and he saw that no one listened, no one cared, and he didn't cause anything good. As a matter of fact, all that happened was the people were still destroyed anyway. At the end of that, I wonder if he would have looked back and said, was this really what God wanted me to do? Like, is this really what I was here to do? Like, I could see second-guessing being a really important part of it. Looking back and thinking my entire life and my entire ministry was pointless because it didn't accomplish anything good. The people didn't listen, and they still got destroyed. Like, Assyria still came in and wiped us out. What was the purpose? And you can look back, and you can think, there's no reason for me to be here. There's no reason for me to have done this. But because of this very obvious call and this obvious description— uh, he knows, okay, so even though it didn't work out wonderfully, it didn't have a storybook ending, this was still what I was supposed to do. I wonder in our lives how often we find ourselves without the amazing call of Isaiah 6, where we get to see the presence of the glory of God, the king enthroned upon the, his altar, and, and we don't get to see that. We just see, I'm doing this, and it doesn't look like it's accomplishing very much. Is this actually what God wants me to be doing? If you don't get the first part, it's hard to accept the second part. And so Isaiah, I think, is, is an, an interesting example of someone who had a very important call from God, a very important mission, a very obvious mission. But if you look at the mission itself, it doesn't seem like it was all that important from my perspective or from a human perspective. It looks like it was kind of a failed mission. So why would God send someone on a failed mission? Well, all we know is that God still had plans. God was fulfilling his purposes, and God was using Isaiah to do it. So Isaiah was doing what he was supposed to do, even though it's hard to, to look back at that. I want to talk about someone else now, example number two, who didn't have this incredible Isaiah call in the temple where he got to see the glory of God. As a matter of fact, he uh, had no clues. Uh, I mean, I guess there were a couple of clues. Uh, there were some dreams he had as clues. Uh, but there was no obvious call that what he was doing was God's will. His name is Joseph, and he was someone who was chosen and loved by his father above his other brothers. Uh, he went out to go check on his brothers one day, and his brothers were sick and tired of him. One, because he's kind of arrogant, and he keeps having these dreams that he tells them all about, and, and uh, seems to be putting himself... Uh, you know, even if you have the dream, he could have kept it to himself. But, uh, but he, he tells his brothers about this, which just uh, increases the hostility that is already there because his father clearly is showing favoritism. Uh, he was the firstborn son of the most loved wife, Rachel. His father also had this other wife he didn't love all that much. And uh, so the other boys to her, like they weren't all that special. Then they started giving him, well, here's my, my maidservant, have a child with her. See, he ends up having children with like four different women, but it's only at the very end that he has a child with Rachel. And he's like, finally, the son that I love. And so then he gives him like this special ornamented coat and he gives him all this privilege. And the other brothers are like, what is this? So they end up hating him. Like they end up growing in hostility so much so that they want to kill him out of jealousy and envy. It's not a very functional household. By the way, if you read through Genesis, every family that's described is a terribly dysfunctional family. Like polygamy is not a good idea. And, and a lot of these things that you see pop up in Genesis, they just lead to problems. Anyway, so he goes out there, and uh, so they're going to kill him. They decide not to kill him. They decide to throw him in a pit. They take him out of the pit. They end up selling him into slavery, and he ends up living as a slave. All right, so if you're thinking, 
all right, so what is God's will for me? To go be a slave in Egypt or to be a faithful son of my father's household? You probably wouldn't want to choose the slave in Egypt route, but he does, and he ends up there. And he ends up, uh, some things work out occasionally, I guess, if, for a, if you call being a slave working out. Uh, he ends up doing well as a slave in Potiphar's household, but then he gets falsely accused of some, some uh, immorality. He ends up in prison. And he's in prison for years. And he doesn't really accomplish much good at all, except he interprets some dreams for some prisoners, one of whom dies. And so it's like, okay, so he has some, some divine abilities working through him given by God, but they're not accomplishing all that much. Uh, it doesn't seem like he's able to do a lot of good. But then eventually, because he interpreted one person's dream who went out and told Pharaoh about it, he ends up years later getting to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And Pharaoh was given these dreams that if understood properly, would ultimately lead to saving the people. Like there was a drought coming. There were seven years of plenty and then seven years of drought. And so Joseph says, hey, don't squander that seven years of plenty. Store it up and prepare because some really hard times are coming. And so they listen to him. They do it and the people are saved. Not only are the people of Egypt saved, but people from all around the area start traveling to Egypt because Egypt is the only place that is surviving this drought. And it's because of Joseph. In fact, some of the people who are in a terrible, uh, desperate situation who come to Egypt for salvation are his brothers, the ones who had, you know, sent him off into slavery. And he is able to save his family. He's able to save all of Egypt. He's able to save all kinds of people. And it's at the very last chapter of the book of Genesis when he says something really fascinating. So in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, I'll start in verse 19. Joseph, speaking to his brothers, looking back on the situation, says, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I not, uh, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to save many people alive. Um, so here's what he says. You guys sold me into slavery and you meant it for evil. Like you were trying to harm me. You were jealous. Like you meant bad for that. But God had other plans. And he took your evil, sinful action and he used it. And apparently, even though like night after night, I would have thought my life is ruined. I'm a slave or my life is ruined. I'm a prisoner. God had me exactly where he wanted me to be. And looking back, he's able to see I'm not here on accident. I'm here for a very important purpose. I'm here so that God could save many, many people. And God did save many, many people. So with Isaiah, what you have is kind of the reversal of this. At the very beginning, you have this prophetic call, this understanding God wants me to be here doing this. But then the rest of his ministry, it doesn't quite look like it. For Joseph, you have this whole life that's lived. And it's like problem after problem after problem, thinking I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I shouldn't be a slave. I shouldn't be uh, in prison. I shouldn't even be in Egypt. But then at the end, he's able to look back and realize, oh, wait a minute. I was where God wanted me to be. So Isaiah is able to see his purpose at the beginning, and Joseph's able to see it at the end. And a lot of times, we don't know where we are on that spectrum. We don't know if we'll see it at the beginning. We don't know if we'll see it at the end. We don't know if we'll ever fully come to understand why we are doing what we're doing. But I do believe with all of my heart that you're called to do it. And I believe there's a helpful mindset that 
I try to take with me and perhaps we can take with us as we go through uh, 2022. And there's two passages in particular that pop to my mind when I think about it. One of them is from the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, uh, you have a series of unfortunate events that lead to uh, Esther being in the king of Persia's house, uh, being chosen as his wife at a time when the king of Persia is planning uh, to wipe out the Jewish people because of a disagreement between a Jewish man and one of his uh, leading, uh, leading officials. And so, uh, like, the whole thing is, is, it's a mess of a story. But Esther finds herself in the middle of it. And she has to make some decisions. Okay, do I let him know that I'm Jewish and I'm among these people who are going to be wiped out? And, and beg to spare their life or do i just kind of keep myself safe and quiet and don't say anything like that and just go through the motions and she's talking with with mordecai about that and mordecai says something to her very interesting he seems to be confident that god is going to save his people um but he does say to her in verse chapter 4 and verse 13 do not imagine that you're in the king's palace uh, that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. What he's saying is, look, I don't think you'll be able to live that quiet, comfortable life the rest of your life. I think you'll probably be found out just like everyone else. Then he says in verse 14, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. He's saying, I think God will find another way to protect them if you don't do it now. But, and this is how he ends, and who knows whether you have attained such royalty for such a time as this. He doesn't actually say, in fact, if you read through Esther, what's one of the fascinating things? There's not much talk about God at all in this book, but there are clues and references and allusions to the presence and the work of God throughout. And this is one of those passages where he's saying, maybe you're actually here for a reason. Maybe you have attained royalty for just this time, maybe God is doing something with you that you didn't know about. And I think it's a really healthy attitude to have, to always leave open the possibility. Maybe God's doing something right here. Maybe God's working something. Maybe I am exactly where I need to be because God wants me to do this. Maybe I'm sent the other passage is from the book of, uh, of Philemon. You have uh, this, uh, this slave who has run away, and uh, he is being sent back basically to his master, but his master is a Christian, and the slave is also a Christian. And Paul is writing a letter to the master saying, hey, let this guy not be your slave anymore. Accept him back, not as a slave anymore, but as a brother. And, and, and he wants him to show love and kindness and Christian charity towards him. And so he says in chapter 1 and verse 15, Basically, what seems to have happened was the slave ran away, met Paul, became a Christian, and now is coming back. And he says, For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him come back forever, no longer as a slave, but much more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. What he's saying is, maybe there was actually some strings being pulled behind the scenes that we didn't know about. Maybe he left you and God had a purpose for that. Maybe the slave ran away for the very purpose that he would come back to you and he would not be your slave, but he would be your brother. Maybe God was doing something. Maybe he was sent. Um, 
As we go throughout this year, I want us to leave that possibility in our minds that maybe you're here right now because you have already been sent here. Maybe you're here right now because you already have a purpose. God already has a mission for you. And it's time for us to open our eyes to that mission and to begin to work for the kingdom right where we are. Throughout the year, we'll talk about ways that we can do that. We'll talk about uh, some ways, both here and abroad. We'll talk about, uh, we'll do some studying through the book of Acts. We'll try to see some ways that we can make sure that we are not only an inward-focused church, but also we focus outward. But what I want us to take from this lesson is that you're here for a reason, you're here for a purpose. And uh, God can use you right where you are for his kingdom. If there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian and start off the year uh, with, by committing yourself to God, by having your sins washed away in baptism, or asking the prayers of the church, we pray that you would let that be known, that you would come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.